0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR and I'm standing in today for this podcast's regular host, our director, Mark Leonard. And this week we're looking at what else? Brexit. Almost two and a half years after Britain voted to leave the EU, there's finally a draft withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU and a political declaration to set the guidelines of a future deal. But the agreement hasn't been well-received, to say the least. The government's own Brexit Secretary has resigned, the second Brexit Secretary, in fact, to resign in relatively short time, and the Labour Party has pledged to oppose the agreement. So will the agreement get through Parliament? What will happen if it doesn't? And what kind of relationship does it promise for the future between the UK and the European Union? With me to shed some light on these many unknowns is the senior Labour politician, Douglas Alexander, former Europe minister, former Secretary of State for International Development, and shadow foreign secretary. Now out of Parliament, he's a fellow at Harvard and chair of UNICEF UK, and not least, an ECFR council member. So, uh, Douglas, this deal, um, the shape of it has been kind of obvious for some time, but here it is finally at last, all 585 pages of it what do you make of it? Well, we're
1: having this conversation on the morning after the release of uh, the terms of the draft withdrawal agreement, um, and rather than thinking about this as the world in 30 minutes, I rather fear the world may be different in another 30 minutes. Just as we were arriving here at the ECFR's offices in London, news reached us that Dominic Rabb. Uh, Up until now, the Brexit Secretary, that's the Secretary of State in the Cabinet, charged with responsibility for leading the negotiations, has just resigned from the British Cabinet. So in that sense, I think we need a degree of humility in trying to plot the way forward, because even in the last half hour, um, the world of Brexit has changed, and who knows where we'll find ourselves in the next half hour. So what do we know? We know that after many months of negotiation involving officials from the British Government and from the European Commission... Um, a draft withdrawal agreement was reached. It's important to draw that distinction. This essentially sets out a negotiated position on the terms of withdrawal. It does not address the future trading relationship around which there is a much shorter draft political declaration. So many of the people in the United Kingdom who are critical of this deal say, well, we know the terms of the divorce, but we don't know what comes next. Now, ever since the summer of Uh, 2017, when it was clear that Michel Barnier wanted what he called sequentialism, dealing with the past issues before addressing the issues of the future, it was likely that we would reach this point. But what we saw yesterday was perhaps the most consequential cabinet meeting that we've seen in recent years, five hours of discussion, leading to what seemed like a rather fragile consensus last night that has already split apart this morning. So while I think it's important in the course of this conversation we discuss what's in the withdrawal agreement, I think it's important to give, not least listeners across Europe, a census to what are the next series of challenges. And essentially in December last year at the European Council, December of 2017, there were two very significant undertakings reached. First of all, with the European Council, there was an agreement reached that there would be a backstop provision in relation to Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, And that has proved to be a central element, not just of the negotiations, but a central feature of the withdrawal agreement that was published in draft yesterday. But at the same time, when Theresa May came back from the European Council in December of 2017, under pressure from her own Conservative backbenchers in Parliament, she was obliged to offer what's come to be known as a meaningful vote. So while what we saw yesterday was agreement between the negotiators... What we certainly have not yet seen is agreement in the British Parliament. And over the months I've been conscious that there are really two risks representing the prospect of no deal – one risk is that the negotiations are not concluded. And what we saw yesterday was the beginnings of an agreement. It will need, naturally need to go to a seal the deal European Council anticipated in 10 days' time um, in Brussels. There will need to be further discussions with the European Parliament and there will need to be agreement um, reached between Europe and the government of the United Kingdom. But as well as the negotiation risk, there has since December of 2017 and the commitment to a meaningful vote been a ratification risk. And the real risk to this deal now is, in my judgment, not that the European Council rejects it or the 27 governments, albeit that they will be pouring over those 585 pages between now and a week on Sunday when they gather to look at this agreement. The real risk is a political risk that right now, as of this morning, the morning after the withdrawal agreement was produced in draft, there simply isn't a majority in the House of Commons for it. And in that sense... I think British politics is going to prove to be more decisive to the fate of this withdrawal agreement in the coming days than actually European policy.
0: Well, come on in a minute to that question, which is clearly the crucial one. Will it get through Parliament? Um, and if not, then what? Um, but we should maybe just pause to um, examine a little bit the agreement before we look at its fate. Um, in a sense, it's been said that the fact that almost everyone hates this agreement shows that it's managed to kind of position itself in the centre ground, um, you know, splitting the difference from a, a essentially rather weak prime minister um, and trying to give something, but not everything they want, to all sides. In that sense, do you think this is the, the kind of best compromise deal that she could have got?
1: Well, essentially, this is part of the deal between the United Kingdom and the European Union in the sense that these are the terms of the divorce. And in that sense, the withdrawal agreement was always going to have to address three key issues. Firstly, the issue of finance. What are the commitments that were entered into by the European Union during Britain's membership? And how would Britain account for the gap that would be left by the loss of British membership fees? And really, for many months, there's been an understanding and an agreement that the range would be approximately 35 to £39 billion. And that's reflected in the agreement that we saw yesterday. Secondly, there was the issue of citizens' rights. What are the um, rights of those EU citizens and EU nationals living within the United Kingdom after Brexit and the UK nationals living within the 27 after Brexit? And again, I'm glad to say there's been broad agreement on that and those issues have been concluded. The key issue that has proved most problematic has actually been the Northern Irish issue. And really, when the decision was taken to move on at the last, the European Council last December that in the terms that were used at the time, sufficient progress had been made on the Phase 1 issues to move to the future relationship, the Phase 2 issues, there really was an agreement last year to continue to disagree. If you like, the can was kicked down the road on Northern Ireland, or perhaps more accurately, the can was kicked down the 270 roads that crossed the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And what seemed like a problem in December had become a greater problem by the summer of this year and risked becoming a real crisis in recent weeks. And actually, in the tunnel in Brussels where Barnier's negotiators and Theresa May's negotiators have been working away from the public glare in recent weeks, a huge focus of their work in this withdrawal agreement has been how to resolve the tension between a commitment to no hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, consistent with the Good Friday Agreement that was essentially the terms of the backstop negotiated last December, and on the other hand, the determination of the Brexiteers within Theresa May's cabinet and within the British Parliament to avoid being locked in in perpetuity to a customs union that would either inhibit the United Kingdom doing trade deals in the future or would effectively mean that de facto Britain hadn't completely left the European Union. So what emerged yesterday in terms of the documentation was what's being described as a single customs territory, whereby the analogy that's being used, one should think of a swimming pool with a shallow end and a deep end. Northern Ireland essentially being within a single customs union, including the United Kingdom and the European Union, but being under more obligations to adhere to the regulations of the single market, whereas an all-UK solution would not require the mainland of the United Kingdom to engage fully in the regulations of the single market. That, of course, helps explain why the Democratic Unionist Party have had such a neuralgic reaction to what emerged yesterday. So I always suspected, I have to say, given the skill and the smarts of both European and British negotiators, that a form of wording would be found that would acknowledge the backstop and hold out the prospect of a future trading relationship, I've always been sceptical as to whether the politicians would buy the words that the negotiators delivered.
0: Right. And is this, I mean, I can see that this is a kind of ingenious solution on paper, but is it something that could be translated into practice and would work? And if so, um, you know, how long would it last for?
1: Well, this is where politics, commerce and law intersect in the sense that could it work? Um, It could work in practical terms. It is perfectly conceivable that, for example, there would be more um, regulatory checks on goods crossing the Irish Sea between the United Kingdom, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Does it work politically? No, it doesn't. Certainly for the Democratic Unionist Party, certainly for elements of the Conservative Party, certainly for the Labour Party. And so the jeopardy into which this agreement has fallen within hours of its release is not the practicality of could this be made to work, it is can this be made to work politically and at what cost could it be made to work. If I was a Democratic Unionist Party politician sitting in front of you today, I would say that the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom trumps the practical issue of whether you can have more checks on goods leaving Liverpool or um, Strenroir in Scotland travelling to Larne in Northern Ireland and in that sense, um, the practical question of could it work is totally intertwined in the politics of the constitutional future, not just of the United Kingdom, but of the future relationship with the European Union.
0: Right. And you mentioned the political problems that it would face. It's also worth talking about Scotland, isn't it? You, you are Scottish. You represented a Scottish constituency. Um, and this agreement seems to offer, in some ways, a more attractive option... To Northern Ireland, then to Scotland, where support for staying in the EU was also very high.
1: Well, 62% of us in Scotland voted to remain within uh, the European Union, only 38% voted to leave. Um, and in that sense, the sentiment in Scotland, there's no real indication that it shifted, there continues to be strong support. And I think that in part reflects the fact that as Scots, we've grown up, and indeed our forebears have grown up part of a multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic union. We're part of the United Kingdom and so we're pretty comfortable with the idea of pluralism, layered identities and layered levels of political authority. That being said, um, there are very distinctive attributes to Northern Ireland which were recognised, as I say, a year ago at the December European Council by the specific provisions in relation to the backstop. And I think that they're is great sensitivity within the United Kingdom about what is distinctive about Northern Ireland that I think will also be recognized and reflected in the in the conversations in Scotland um, that being said um, there is no doubt difficulties ahead for the government. What will be the position of the 13 Scottish Conservative members of Parliament? They have a particular concern given where they sit and what seats they represent in Scotland for the future of the Scottish fishing industry. Many of the Brexit campaigners suggested that there would be nothing but good news in relation to fisheries policy if Britain was to leave the European Union. Michel Barnier's negotiators have been pretty clear in recent months That if Scottish fish exports to the European Union, British fish exports to the European Union, want tariff-free access to the single market, then there's a clear expectation that European boats will have access to British fishing waters. That was a judgment that seems, on the basis of the 585 pages published yesterday, to again have been kicked down the road but it's a very real and controversial issue that I expect will come back in Scottish politics and indeed in British politics.
0: So we've been talking about the withdrawal agreement because that's where the detail is and the substance is. Um, the other uh, declaration um, is much shorter and much vaguer about the future, the shape of the future relationship, the negotiating parameters or the outlines or guidelines for a future deal. Can we tell anything about this? It's fairly... Um, You know, fairly vague. Um, it's been described as a blind. First of
1: all, we should probably pray credit to the people who have drafted it. At least it's seven pages as distinct from 585 pages. So it's easier to get through than all 585 pages. But that being said, I've always anticipated that the political declaration would be a consciously vague and ambiguous document onto which everybody could project their best hopes for the future. And that's rather by design. Theresa May needs to be able to say to her own backbenchers and to others in Parliament, listen, there's a great future ahead, but we'll get to that stage of the negotiations on the basis of the political declaration. I think the European negotiators have been able to say, listen, we've got a legally binding withdrawal agreement if it's ratified. That's the real issue at this stage. The United Kingdom, frankly, will be at a worse position in negotiating with us when it's a third country after the end of March next year. So in that sense, I've always been sceptical as to how much weight to place on the political declaration. And what emerged yesterday has only added to my scepticism. So in that sense, I think what we do know about the future trading relationship is, first of all, Britain will be negotiating from a weaker position than today because we'll be negotiating as a third country rather than as a member state of the European Union. Secondly, there is very little clarity at this stage as to the character of that future trading relationship. Thirdly... I don't see much prospect of meaningful negotiations starting on that future trading relationship until the autumn of next year. Because remember, once if we see this um, Brexit happens at the end of March of 2019, we've then got European Parliament elections in May, we've got the establishment of a new commission, we've got the summer when Europeans tend to take a longer break in August, that I think it won't really be until the autumn that we begin to get meaningful conversations as to what will be the character of the future trading relationship between a post-Brexit Britain and the European Union.
0: And in the meantime, the kind of interim arrangements that are sketched out both through the transition and then through the backstop, that could be going on for several years.
1: What emerged yesterday uh, was confirmation that we're looking at a 21-month transitional period. That, I expect, will be welcomed by British business, whose greatest fear, according to Caroline Fairbairn of the CBI, is the cliff edge that a disorderly Brexit would precipitate at the end of March of next year, So if there is agreement reached and ratification within the British and and other uh, national parliaments, then what we will see will be 21 months in which, frankly, not very much changes in terms of the regulatory and legal environment in which business operates. That being said, having been party to trade negotiations when I was trade investment and foreign affairs minister in the British government in previous years, it's still a very big undertaking to try and negotiate a comprehensive free trade agreement within 21 months particularly in circumstances where, unusually for a trade agreement, the expectations of the countries is that their regulatory environments will diverge rather than converge. Generally, what trading negotiations are about is how do we align the two different countries' regulatory environment in a way that allows us to conclude a trade deal. It is central to the vision of the future that the Brexiteers hold – that they aspire to divergence from the European regulatory environment. So there are some real challenges down the road, even if we were to see ratification of the British Parliament, agreement of the withdrawal agreement, the establishment of a new commission, there's some tough work for the negotiators lying ahead in the autumn of next year.
0: So now that we've unpacked the agreement, um, let's get on to the question of whether it's not just totally irrelevant, because of those political factors that you mentioned. Um, a lot of Groups and people and individuals have suggested that they are not prepared to support this agreement. And I guess Theresa May's gamble has always been that when push comes to shove, um, at the moment of crisis, facing the danger of no deal, that she could get just enough votes to get this through. Do you see that happening?
1: Well, I was trying to to work the numbers, because in politics it always comes down to the numbers uh, before speaking to you this morning. And... As we stand, as we um, record this podcast, it seems to me that the government is down by about 50 votes in the House of Commons. If, you add, toge- of if you add together the Democratic Unionist Party, the Conservatives who have already outed themselves as being opposed to this deal, you add in the Scottish National Party, the Liberal Democrats, and um, we're talking a significant deficit that Theresa May needs to overcome between now and what we anticipate will be the votes in the House of Commons around the middle of December following both a seal the deal summit in 10 days time and just ahead of the European Council in December. So if we're working on that timescale, she's got a huge amount of ground that she has to, to make up. That task has been made materially more difficult within the last hour by the resignation of Dominic Raab, her Brexit secretary, which will be taken as a signal to many within the European Reform Group and on the Brexit hard Brexit wing of the Conservative Party that they can not in conscience support this deal. So in that sense, part of the jeopardy around this whole process has been the deep, deep uncertainty as to where those votes are going to come from. I did a panel discussion with um, Kim Dareth, who was previously in UKREP when I was the Europe minister, a very distinguished British civil servant, who's now the British ambassador in Washington um, 10 days ago. And on a public panel, Kim was asserting that he believed when push came to shove, there would be Labour MPs who would vote for this deal. Now I admire him very much but I know my um, uh, former colleagues in parliament pretty well I just don't believe that if that's the government strategy that's a strategy that's going to deliver for them in the sense that the number of labor MPs although a significant number of them have leave majorities in their constituencies that in these circumstances are likely to vote for Theresa May's deal seems to me to be very small and I I, in part, make that judgment on the basis of Keir Stammer, the shadow Brexit secretary, who speaks on these issues for the Labour Party's comments this morning, in which he said, if you look at the six tests that Labour has set for any deal, this proposed withdrawal agreement fails every one of them. Not one out of six, but six out of six. And in that sense, of course, there are some individual MPs within the Labour benches who have been visible and voluble supporters of Brexit, But even they will face significant pressure from their constituency parties and from within the Labour Party to say, even if you support Brexit in principle, are you really going to deliver this Tory Brexit? So I am innately sceptical that there will be a significantly large number of Labour MPs willing to support this deal. I think the interesting conversation is what happens within the Conservative Party. Because I think if you are the Conservative chief whip at the moment the real question you need to ask yourself is how do you persuade people who have identified their very deep reservations about this withdrawal agreement and persuade them that the alternatives are worse? And in that sense, that will in part reflect the statement that Theresa May made in Downing Street after the five-hour cabinet meeting yesterday, where she said there's now really only choices between this draft withdrawal agreement, no Brexit, um, or um, a, a, you know, a further on chaos and uncertainty and, and a disorderly Brexit. And in that sense, that seems to me to be the language and the formula that the government whips will be using as we look to the weeks ahead. Right now, I'm struggling to see how the government whips are going to be able to deliver a majority for the government. That may change in the days and the weeks ahead. But I think we should also perhaps consider the precedent of the TARP votes in the US Congress, where if you recollect in the teeth of the financial crisis, Congress initially rejected the toxic assets recovery programme that was put by the administration. So overwhelming was the public and market reaction to that rejection that when the vote got put back to the Congress, there was a majority for TARP to pass. And I certainly wouldn't discount the possibility that the Conservative and government whips have at the back of their mind the prospect that they may lose the first time, but there will be such a bow wave of anxiety and concern as to the consequences of that first vote that they countenance a second vote in those circumstances.
0: That's always been the question that I I wondered about here too, is whether the government might simply expect to discount the first vote and lose it and then try for putting it through again to frame it in such a way that it's, you know, March is getting closer... Um, there's no alternative in place. You know, you've expressed your views and you've shown that you really don't like this. But if it really comes down to the choice between no deal and this deal, um, is it, you know, is that enough to get it through? And um, Joe Johnson, fellow ECFR council member and transport minister, in his statement resigning, he said, you know, we shouldn't be too afraid. No no deal would be terrible, but we shouldn't be too afraid um you know so that we support this deal simply as an alternative. But is that is that line ultimately going to hold? I mean there the,
1: the history of the Brexit negotiations are are riddled with with um irony. You know, one of the ironies being that Britain used to be a member that was in the European Union and seeking opt-outs and now we aspire according to the government to be out of the European Union and aspire to opt-ins. The second great irony, it seems to me, is that for almost two years now as Prime Minister, Theresa May's go-to line has been, um, a bad deal is, is worse than no deal. And what she essentially did was stand on her head in Downing Street yesterday and say, a bad deal is better than no deal. And in that sense, on that judgment will be determined the fate of this withdrawal agreement. As in, do MPs ultimately decide that what they regard as a bad deal is better than no deal? Or do they decide that actually in conscience they can't vote for a bad deal that they think will have very damaging consequences and as a result lead to a series of steps that remain uncertain? Because frankly, if we're in circumstances where the British Parliament in December rejects this deal, we're in uncharted constitutional territory. But I think... One of the difficulties for Theresa May, as evidenced by Joe Johnson's powerful resignation statement at the weekend, is that she's being attacked both by the Remain side of the argument and by the Brexit side of the argument simultaneously. And as military strategists will tell you, it's never comfortable to be fighting on two fronts simultaneously. Any concession she gives to the Brexiteers to secure their support... Will only strengthen the opposition of the remainers and vice versa.
0: And what about Labour? Would Labour's, um, line to vote against hold, do you think, if the vote, if it was put to the vote a second time and if it began clearly to look like an alternative between this deal, unsatisfactory deal, and no deal? I would expect so, in the sense that, um, in policy
1: terms, um, the six tests have become the threshold for support. And this withdrawal agreement manifestly doesn't meet those six tests. So if you like, there is a policy continuity in Labour MPs voting against this agreement. But of course, this is not just a matter of policy, it's also a matter of politics. If you are the opposition, your principal objective is to become the government. And in that sense, I think sincerely and genuinely the Labour leadership believe that in circumstances where um, a deal is rejected, the withdrawal agreement is rejected by the British Parliament that heightens the prospect of a general election. And that's what clearly they aspire to in order to change the character and the, the uh, direction of the country through winning power. So in that sense, I would expect that the Labour ranks will remain pretty solid in the days between now and these votes, um, both for policy and for political reasons.
0: Well, that's the, the government's calculations, Yes, I can
1: can bring you some live news. Yes, literally, Esther McVeigh, um, the Work and Pension Secretary, has resigned um, on the basis of the withdrawal agreement not meeting um, her criteria. So as, as I suggested respectfully at the beginning of this podcast, even in the course
0: of this half hour, the world of Brexit is changing as we predicted. Things are moving and moving in a direction that doesn't look good for the Prime Minister. But do you see any... We've talked about the... You know the government's calculation that it can get it through um, by pres- by framing the narrative as this or no deal. Do you see any alternative at this point, assuming that the first vote is lost, that the prime minister doesn't manage to re- recoup those fifty votes that you've calculated? Well, think- the, can she stay? Could there be a referendum? Would there be a general election? How do we get to any of those alternatives?
1: Well, I think that the. the- The difficulty that Theresa May confronts this morning, as we've seen with two cabinet resignations within the last hour, is that she has, how does one use the right analogy, kicked the can down the road, um, used constructive ambiguity to um, every possible extent over the months of negotiation. But it's very difficult to um, claim Um, that a document achieves something that everybody can now read and judge for themselves. So in that sense, the policy is not now going to change. This has been a negotiation that's been conducted on behalf of the 27 by Michel Barnier and by um, the British government. So in that sense, I don't see how this um, withdrawal agreement changes between now and the vote. That being said, right now, I don't see how the vote is passed in the affirmative for this withdrawal agreement. So if we were to see circumstances in which either um, the vote happens and it's rejected by Parliament, or Theresa May judges, I can't win the vote, and withdraws a commitment to that vote, what happens next? I think it's likely that uh, the opposition would table a motion of no confidence in the government. Under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, there's only two ways that you get to a general election, uh, these days, one is that the government is a government is unable to be formed for two weeks, and we default into a general election, or two thirds of parliament vote for a general election. Now, I struggle to believe either of those scenarios are going to come to pass. Not because there isn't very real jeopardy around the government and very deep dissatisfaction with the way that the government is conducting its Brexit negotiations but because if you look at the structural interests of the two parties that are sustaining the government, the Conservative Party and the Democratic Unionist Party, I don't believe either of them want to put themselves in front of the public anytime soon. The Democratic Unionist Party has not had this much influence on a British government in many, many years. The financial benefits of that are already being felt in Northern Ireland, and the influence that they enjoy is not something that they would be keen to throw away lightly. Secondly, of course... Um, the DUP are not Jeremy Corbyn's greatest fans and if they felt that in all likelihood a general election would precipitate the arrival of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell in Downing Street, that would probably weigh in their judgement as to their enthusiasm for a general election as well. And similarly, notwithstanding the fact that the Conservatives are just ahead of Labour in the most recent opinion polls, I think there would be a great nervousness on the part of most Conservative MPs to go anywhere near a general election anytime soon, particularly in circumstances of perceived humiliation around Brexit. So I think that you have to take very seriously indeed the possibility of a change of Prime Minister, but I'm less convinced as yet, although we're in a very fluid situation, that that necessarily means a change of government. I think it's perfectly conceivable that the 1922 committee, the body charged with receiving letters requesting a leadership contest within the Conservative Party, may yet receive the requisite number of letters and a leadership contest takes place. But even if that leadership contest was to result in Theresa May being removed, I don't think that necessarily means that there's going to be a general election in the United Kingdom. So what then happens? It is conceivable that Theresa May makes the judgment that I've just suggested, that she doesn't want to go anywhere near the general election, but on the other hand, she's totally deadlocked in Parliament, and Parliament cannot approve the deal, and we're heading towards a disorderly Brexit. At that point, people's vote campaigners argue that there is another choice open to her, which is to say, listen, I've tried my best, I've got a really strong agreement as far as I can uh, negotiate it, but Parliament is the barrier to ratification so I'm going to put this back to the people. And she would be more likely in the minds of people's vote campaigners to do that than to say Parliament is deadlocked, so let's call a general election. And on that hope rests the aspirations and the the motivation of many people's vote campaigners. But it would only be in circumstances of profound constitutional crisis, which may be the circumstances into which Britain is now heading.
0: And what would be the terms of that vote? Because, of course, the big question there is, would the people be asked to vote on, do you accept this deal or no deal? Or alternatively, the people might be asked to vote on three options, this deal, no deal, or no Brexit. Well, of course,
1: that remains uncertain. If you listen to former cabinet members like Justine Greening, she argues for a three-option vote. If you listen to John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor in the Labour Party, he suggested it should be a vote between no deal and a Theresa May's deal. Um, the People's Vote campaigners overwhelmingly are looking for a choice between remaining within the European Union and the deal on the table in terms of the Withdrawal Agreement. So, frankly, there is great uncertainty as to what the question would be. What we do know is the only circumstances in which such a vote could take place would be where there was effectively an extension of the Article 50 process, so the EU 27 would have to say, in these circumstances we would extend the Article 50 process, That needs to be done by unanimity within the European Council. But I think if there was a prospect of a vote to remain within the European Union, my best judgment is that European governments would accede to that request. Would they be willing to accede to a request to extend Article 50 when remain was not on the ballot paper? I'm somewhat more sceptical, but we would have to see where we got to in that regard. But on any circumstance, there can't be a referendum between now and March. So there would need to be an extension of the Article 50 process agreement on the question, uh, the requisite regulatory steps taken in terms of uh, the financing of the campaign, the length of time of the campaign, the establishment of designated campaigns. So the very earliest a referendum could happen would be next summer, rather than something being squeezed into January or February.
0: So effectively, you're saying that this could be the, the EU, the Commission could come back and say, we'll only extend on condition that you have a Remain option in the vote?
1: Well, that's that's within the bounds of possibility. Whether that would be well received by a British government, um, the European uh, Council telling the British Parliament what it's able to uh, uh, legislate for in terms of a referendum, I can't imagine that would be well received. But in that sense, um, it is it is just a matter of fact that the European Council in those circumstances would be asked to extend Article 50, and it is conceivable that they would have... Judgements to make around the character of the question that they anticipated would be required uh, would require the extension of the Article Fifty process.
0: Absent that kind of, um, you know, influence from the the Commission, um, you've talked about it comes down to the numbers. How do you see the numbers now? If you can even begin to make that calculation, presumably they remain at the moment within Parliament. If it comes to a popular people's vote, they would remain a majority for the option that doesn't include Remain? Um, Well,
1: frankly, I don't think there's a majority in Parliament right now for the people's vote, and I think the only circumstances in which those numbers would grow would be in circumstances of profound constitutional crisis and parliamentary deadlock. So, to my mind, I think that the sequence will be, does the withdrawal agreement die, either by a vote, or by the fact that such a vote would not see the withdrawal agreement carried, and what happens next? And in that sense, frankly, whether there's a majority right now for a people's vote in Parliament or not is less material than is there a majority for the withdrawal agreement. As we are discussing it, there's no majority for the withdrawal agreement, which means we're moving into uncharted territory. One destination in that uncharted territory is that a majority emerges for a people's vote. But even with a majority for a people's vote, it would require the leadership of one of the principal political parties to advocate for a people's vote. And right now, Jeremy Corbyn is not um, advocating actively for a people's vote, and certainly neither is Theresa May. So there would be a number of pieces of the jigsaw that would need to fall into place in circumstances of constitutional crisis and parliamentary deadlock. It is a possibility. It is very, very far from a certainty.
0: How scared are you at this point, as we look to the next few months, that the outcome that in many people 's minds is the worst possible outcome the crashing out with no deal. Um, are you kind of this morning more worried that this is a real possibility now?
1: Um, my anxiety has grown during the autumn uh, as the possibility of a disorderly um, departure of the United Kingdom next march, which incidentally let 's remember means that we lose. Um, what's been called the transition period, the implementation period, but the 21 months of continuity. So it would be the hardest of hard Brexit's at the end of March, um, 11 o'clock UK time, 12 o'clock Brussels time, um, which would bring a huge degree of legal, regulatory and practical uncertainty. So my anxiety has grown during the autumn, but that is a scenario with a growing probability Up until relatively recently, I've believed and continue to believe that there would be a negotiation agreed, which is what we saw emerge yesterday. My principal reason for concern has been the ratification risk more than the negotiation risk. If you like, I had great confidence in the ingenuity of the negotiators to find a formulation, and that's what we saw in this 585-page document yesterday, but as things stand this morning, my anxiety is being vindicated with two cabinet resignations within the hour, one while we've been undertaking this podcast, that right now there seems to be a very profound blockage on the road to an orderly departure, which is that there's no majority in the British Parliament for the withdrawal agreement.
0: Well, that's a somber note to end on. But um, as we've said repeatedly during this podcast, things remain very much up in the air Um, perhaps we should invite you on when the situation looks different say in a a few hours or tomorrow Um, but for the moment thank you very much Douglas and the researcher for ECFR's podcasts is Jonathan Hackenbroich and the editor is Katharina Botel-Etsinara